This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 14th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up, staff writer Eric Stockstead joins me to talk about possible harms from how the shipping industry is responding to new air pollution regulations. Instead of pumping health-harming chemicals into the air, they're now dumping them into oceans. Next, researcher William Brune talks about flying into a thunderstorm and how measurements from research flights revealed the surprising amount of air cleaning oxidants created by lightning. Finally, in a sponsored segment, director of custom publishing Sean Sanders talks with researcher Manfred Krauss about using humanized mouse models in preclinical research. Last year in 2020, new regulations came online that placed limits on exhaust from ships burning diesel. Now there's concern about some unexpected consequences for the environment. Staff writer Eric Stockstead is here to take us through it. Hi, Eric. Hi, Sarah. Nice to chat again. Yeah, for sure. So these new regulations are focused on compounds that come from burning this really dirty marine diesel fuel. What are the concerning chemicals coming out of these ship engines that might be bad for people? This marine fuel has a lot more sulfur in it than fuel that we burn on the land. And the problem with sulfur is that when it gets into the air, it creates, well, acid rain. That was one of the problems with burning coal on land. And it creates smog, soot particles that are really unhealthy to breathe in. And this affects us on land, even though we're talking about ships. A lot of shipping happens near land, and it's, it's the air pollution in ports and along coastlines that is really the concern for human health. The estimate is that by reducing the amount of sulfur in the fuel, that tens of thousands of premature deaths every year would be prevented. And the limit is basically going from like a certain percentage of sulfur in the fuel to a much lower one. The International Maritime Organization, which is this global organization made up of countries that regulate shipping, they said we're going to 
require ships to use much less sulfur in the fuel going from the previous limit was three and a half percent of sulfur, which is vastly more than you'd have in fuel on land. And to take that down to half a percent. Problem starts with some of these ships um, still burning the dirty fuel, high sulfur fuel, but then scrubbing out the sulfur before it's emitted into the air. So the rule came with an exception. And the exception is that because they were worried about the amount of air pollution, if they installed scrubber, these emissions control devices on the ships to reduce the sulfur coming out of the exhaust, then they could continue to use the, the dirtier fuel. Okay, here's the crux of the problem. If the sulfur is prevented from getting into the atmosphere through the scrubbing process, there's waste involved, and that waste is getting dumped into the ocean. It moves the pollution from the air into the water. That's the fundamental concern, is that you're not really cleaning up the environment. You're cleaning the air at the expense of putting that pollution into the water. Now, is the concern with putting the pollution in the water that it's the same chemicals and the same harm, or is it a different pollution problem that's being created? Yes, it's actually different. When you put the sulfur into the water, it's not a problem. Seawater is very good at converting the sulfur dioxides into harmless forms of the sulfur. The concern is something else. It's the heavy metals that are in the fuel. It's these hydrocarbons that are carcinogenic, these forms of hydrocarbons called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. They are a problem for marine life. They accumulate in organisms. They get magnified up the food webs. There are already problems with large marine mammals getting those from other sources. There's some evidence already that the scrub water, wastewater from this process is harmful to marine life. Yes, the evidence is growing. It is limited. There's just a study out. They took scrubber water from a ferry in Scandinavia that was using this closed loop system. And the company was really optimistic that this water would be very, very clean. They tested it on marine organisms that they collected. These are called copepods. They're little crustaceans. They're in the size of two fleas. They eat plankton and then they get eaten by fish larvae. They're all over the Atlantic. They're a very crucial part of the food web. So they tested this scrubber wash water on the copepods and they were really surprised how little of it caused harm to these copepods. You know, tiny amounts would stop them from molting freeze their development, basically. Small amounts would be toxic. I mean, it was doubling or tripling what you would expect for the normal mortality in the ocean. That's really of concern. The law has only been in place, in effect, since 2020. Well, here we are in 2021. Is there a lot of this dumping going on? One of the reasons I got interested in writing about this now is just recently, at the end of April, there was a report that came out that estimated for the first time how much of this discharge water is likely to be released. They're saying 32 million tons per year near the Great Barrier Reef. That's a lot in some ports, especially where cruise ships are common. They're going to get a lot of this discharge water. More and more ships are installing these scrubbers. You know, there were a couple hundred five years ago, six years ago. Now there are more than 4,000 that are using these scrubbers. That's a concern because ships 
a lot of them travel in the same lane, the same shipping lanes. They end up in the same ports. So the volume of this scrubber water that's coming out of the ships, it seems like it's quite high, right? We've got megatons, millions of tons of this discharge water coming out of ships. The big question, right, is how bad is the discharge water? And that that's hard to know because, first of all, there's not a lot of studies that have been done on what's in it. We know the kinds of things the researchers are worried about. How much is in the discharge water coming from each ship? That varies a lot depending on what's installed, how the engine is operating, all sorts of factors. These estimates around the world of how much water is being discharged from these scrubbers, right now that's kind of an indication of the potential size of the problem. It's an indication of which ports are going to be more impacted. Well, and if it's something that the shipping companies continue to expand, what if it becomes more and more common as they look at options for how to keep their their sulfur emissions capped? The trend has been exponential. It's growing really fast. Now, industry says it's going to taper off because most of the ships have now been installed. But uh, even the current number, there's concern about that, especially in, in ports, in estuaries along the coast where the water, it's more confined than in the open ocean. The mantra is the solution to pollution is dilution. (laughs) I did not know that. That's an oldie, but a goodie. But in ports, it's more of an issue. In estuaries and confined areas like the Baltic, with a lot of shipping traffic and goals to increase that shipping traffic. Now that these numbers are available, you know, is that something that IMO could go back and say, no more scrubbers or don't discharge in these places or only use these kinds of fuels? There are more and more calls for that. You know, the frustration for environmental groups is that it takes a long time to get regulations passed at the IMO because it's all the nations. Some people I talked to said they didn't imagine that happening anytime soon. The other approach, and this is already happening, is that individual ports, countries, states in the U.S., they're already starting to restrict some of these scrubbers. Mm -hmm. They're saying you can't dump your wastewater here. They're saying that you can't discharge the scrubber waste into the ports or the territorial waters. Well, what other options are there out there, Eric, besides, you know, these scrubbers? The ships can just... I don't know how easy it is to switch the kind of fuel that you use on your boat. Many of these ships, they have multiple fuel tanks. So what they can do, if they're sailing across the ocean and all they have to do is use their scrubber to meet the air quality regulations, they can burn the dirtier fuel, the cheaper fuel. When they come into what's called an emissions control area, then they've they've started to switch to the cleaner fuel that they keep in another tank and they can turn off their scrubber and just burn the more expensive, cleaner fuel. So the ships do have some flexibility. There's nothing about mechanical about a ship that says we have to use the dirtiest fuel possible. It's much more just cost-effective to use the marine diesel. That's right. They're more flexible than your car is, right? Yeah. So, you know, if if they're using the dirtiest fuel at room temperature, this stuff has got the consistency of peanut butter. Oh, God. They can burn that. They can also burn the cleanest fuel. Right. Do you think that there's going to be more regulations, at least country by country? That seems to be the trend. I didn't get a lot of sense of optimism that we were going to get more strict global limits anytime soon. 
industry says these scrubbers, they're a bridge from the current dirty fossil fuels to fuels of the future. Nobody wants to pollute. Yeah. There's a long way to go if you think about the current restrictions. You think about the existing bans, right? One estimate is that's reducing these potential scrubber discharges by volume a couple of percent all around the world. So, And how about the emissions, airborne emissions? Do we know how much that pollution has been reduced or is supposed to be reduced by the regulations? So IMO estimates that there'll be a 77% drop in overall sulfur oxides coming out of ships. That's a good improvement, right? I mean, I think air quality is improving because of this regulation. The concern is that water quality might be harmed. Thanks so much, Eric. You bet, Sarah. Always nice to talk with you. Eric Stockstead is a staff newswriter for Science. You can find a link to the article we discussed at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with William Brune about flying into a thunderstorm to measure oxidant creation by lightning. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Now we have William Brune. He and his colleagues wrote about the effects of lightning on oxidant levels in the atmosphere in this week's issue of Science. Hi, Bill. Hello. Let's get some basics out of the way. What are oxidants and how could lightning make them in the atmosphere? The primary oxidant in the atmosphere is a very small molecule called the hydroxyl radical, OH. So just an oxygen and a hydrogen is produced by essentially splitting water vapor, splitting a hydrogen off of water vapor, and you make OH and you make H. H goes on to make something else. But OH is the primary oxidant of the atmosphere. And lightning can make this. And lightning can do that. And what exactly do oxidants do in the atmosphere? Why, are, why should we care one way or the other what their levels are? So oxidants in the atmosphere essentially do all atmospheric chemistry. This means if you have emissions from the surface of, say, any chemical, uh, methane, for example, or, or anything, if you didn't have oxidants in the atmosphere, they just build up to very, very high levels, probably toxic levels eventually. So oxidants essentially start the process by which the atmosphere gets cleansed of all these emissions that come off the surface, and they come down as other chemicals that are now water-soluble or sticky, and they can be rained out, or they can just land on the surface and get out of the atmosphere. Okay. The data you used in this study were collected back uh, nine years ago in May and June of 2012 during a series of research flights through thunderstorms. Can you tell us about those flights? What was the mission trying to accomplish with this airplane in these thunderstorms? This study was called the Deep Convective Clouds and Chemistry Study, DC3, as, as we call it. And the whole idea is to look at how air is brought in the lower part of the atmosphere, right above Earth's surface, into a thunderstorm, going up through the thunderstorm, where, of course, there's lightning and there's ice and there's raindrops and whatnot, and then deposited at a high altitude out the top. 
and what the transformation of the chemicals going in, going up to the top through lightning and then coming out the top, what are the chemicals that are coming out the top? And the reason we're interested in that is because that's where there's some ozone and that's a very climate sensitive region of the atmosphere as it turns out. So we're very interested in that whole process and how essentially thunderstorms are affecting what's going on at that level. So a plane was needed to get a closer look at this transformation? We would take the NASA DC-8 aircraft. In addition to the aircraft, we had on the ground radars looking at the same storms that we were flying through, and also a thing called a lightning mapping array, which is essentially radio receivers in an array that can pinpoint where the flashes are in the storm that we're flying through. Were you in the airplane? Yes, I was often. In fact, I was one of the four principal investigators for this study, and so I got to essentially fly in the jump seat in the cockpit while my colleagues worked our instrument and direct the aircraft, okay, go, let's pick this storm, let's go there, that sort of thing. It was, it was a fantastic study, actually, very well designed. It's a big airplane, too. I looked at pictures of this. It actually has been used by NASA since about 1986. It's a used plane that they bought, and then they retrofitted to make it a great research laboratory, actually, a flying laboratory. Basically, the pilots are extraordinary. They really know what they're doing. They know how to get the science done, but keep the plane safe. No one would go into a core of a thunderstorm where there's these horrendous updrafts and downdrafts, and it's just it's, no one would do that. But they could fly as close as they could get to the top of that in the anvil. The anvil is essentially the outflow of the storm that's still in cloud form. And they could get as close as possible to that and still be safe. For the lightning part here, how can you tell? You're in an airplane, you're looking at a storm, you can see lightning, there's detectors on the ground that are also tracking it. But how can you say lightning is doing this? It's such a short-term thing and it crosses a large area. How are you able to make a connection between lightning happening and chemistry happening? We saw these really huge spikes and they were just a thousand times what we normally see and what we were seeing outside of the anvil. And so what we did is we said, okay, how does this overlap with what the lightning mapping array on the ground is telling us? And in fact, there was a lot of coincidence that we could see. So we said, wow, this is really, really exciting. This looks like it really is lightning. But then we went into the laboratory and my graduate student and research associate and I put together this system and we, in the lab, we would make sparks and lo and behold, we could see the same thing. And it was about the same amount of huge signals. So it really was a combination of the aircraft measurements of OH and essentially the lightning mapping array and then the lab work. The three of those things together gives us a pretty solid case. Mm -hmm. And when you took these measurements on this flight, you said they were huge spikes. Were they much larger than people had predicted or had tried to measure before? People had known that lightning might be able to do this, but no one had really done much work on it. Uh, in fact, it really had never been measured in the atmosphere before. This was essentially the first measurements of lightning generated OH in the atmosphere. And it was a discovery, really, because no one knew what would be generated and everything. So we could really quantify what was happening. And so it was a totally new and surprising measurement and one that initially we didn't believe. We thought it was just noise in our instrument. And it was much higher than anybody expected. Oh, yes. OH is a thousand times larger than the largest amount of OH that's been measured in the atmosphere ever. There are lightning flashes that you can see, but there's also discharge happening that's not visible to the eye. Is that also important to the generation of OH? I think it's very important. And it, it was really sort of a surprise. And the reason we sort of stumbled on this is we couldn't always 
match the peaks that we saw in, in the extreme OH with essentially the lightning mapping array. And that got us thinking, so in the lab, we could actually do this, where we would make a discharge, which we would measure by electrical means, but we couldn't see it and we couldn't hear it. And yet it was making lots and lots of OH. Okay. Given this fresh data, or I should say fresh analysis of older data, what does it mean for the way we think about oxidant levels in storms or even kind of more broadly at the global level? We tried to do a calculation based on two storms, one in Colorado, one in Oklahoma, with the data that we had. And we got a very important number in some sense, the lightning generated OH being anywhere from a few percent maybe of total global OH, or maybe even as much as more than 10%, which really is a pretty significant number. It's those numbers that uh, tell us this could be very important for global oxidation. If we're going to talk about the weather and storm frequency, we can't not talk about climate change. You know, if that changes a lot, what would it mean that storms contribute so much oxidant to the atmosphere? There's been a number of studies that have shown that in climate change, as you warm, you're going to have more lightning. That's in discussion still, as far as I can tell. But the point is, is if lightning amount changes, that means you're going to change the amount of lightning generated OH. And so that means you have to know what its current fraction is, which is really highly uncertain, because if it increases, it's going to change essentially the removal of methane, which is a greenhouse gas from the atmosphere, because OH in the atmosphere is the main way, in fact, probably the only way, almost the only way that methane gets out of the atmosphere. It's essentially a big control on really a very important greenhouse gas. So if you want to project into the future, you need to know something about lightning-generated OH so you know what's going to happen in the future with methane. Well, how can we tamp down that uncertainty? Say you get to plan another series of flights. What would you do to make this number more certain? What we didn't have in the deep convective clouds and chemistry experiment, we didn't have anything that was measuring anything about the electric fields or anything in the anvil. So we don't really know from the flights what the connection was directly in a very quantitative way and cause and effect way between the extreme OH and essentially electric fields and all those sort of things happening in the anvil and and what the discharges were like. So clearly we need to have flights that we have both of those on there where we have measurements of electric fields and discharges, little tiny, very weak discharges that we just can't measure from the ground. At the same time, we need to go where most of the storms are, which is in the tropics. And they're very different in the tropics and at mid-latitude, what we call high plains sort of storms. They're very different from those, the ones that are in the tropics. And the lightning is different in them. So until we go to where 70% or whatever the lightning is, and measure some of them, like in Florida, for example, we really don't know what they do, right? We have no idea how much is formed by them. We've touched on ozone a little so far. How is this related to lightning? Many people who have been around lightning, they say, oh, I smelled ozone after the lightning strike. And so, in fact, we know very well that ozone is produced by lightning. There have been laboratory studies that have shown this. One of the interesting things from the point of view of atmospheric chemist is we don't know that the ozone and the OH and other things that are produced by lightning are produced in the same part of the lightning. It's really a very complex sort of chemistry picture in terms of separation of different chemical production. And uh, it's something that we really would like to know more about. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bill. Thank you.
William Bruin is a professor of meteorology and atmospheric science at Pennsylvania State University. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Up next, we have a custom segment sponsored by the Jackson Laboratory, in which custom publishing director Sean Sanders chats with researcher Manfred Krauss about using humanized mouse models in preclinical research. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this custom-sponsored interview from the Science AAA's Custom Publishing Office, brought to you by the Jackson Laboratory. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science, and today I'm excited to interview Dr. Manfred Krauss, Senior Director and Head of In Vivo Pharmacology Oncology at Bristol-Myers Squibb in San Francisco, California. He has extensive experience in developing advanced genetically engineered mouse models to support biomarker development with the aim of improving patient and responder stratification for targeted oncology therapeutics. In addition, he has been research project lead on multiple kinase epigenetic and immune oncology programs. Manfred, thank you so much for joining me today and welcome. Yeah, thanks so much, Sean. So Manfred, you work primarily in preclinical research. Could you describe some of the changes that you've seen in this area in the past five years? Sure. Yeah, in oncology, we need to test and clinically develop more effective and importantly safe combination approaches of drugs modulating the immune system with drugs that primarily target cancer cell intrinsic mechanisms. We need to also overcome resistance mechanisms and understand how our drugs mechanistically function and impact all the cells of the tumor microenvironment. We have to look like really at a more holistic approach. And these are very complex challenges. However, fortunately, there are technical advances such as CRISPR-Cas9 that allow us to more quickly generate with relevant genetically modified cell lines and also complex mouse models to preclinically test model hypotheses. Uh, in addition, advances in single cell analysis such as single cell RNA-seq really empower us to study immune and cancer cell subsets and then elucidate drug exposure requirements to initiate and then maintain a pharmacodynamic response. Your opinion, in what ways have humanized mice models had an impact on preclinical research? Well, while most fundamental biological mechanisms are conserved between mouse and human, the better we understand the immune subsets, we identify more and more differences between the mouse and human immune system. Humanized mouse models with a partial human immune system can complement a preclinical evaluation package. Importantly, they provide the opportunity to test or screen a real clinical candidate instead of a mouse surrogate molecule in an in vivo setting. So humanized models allow us to test new mechanistic questions in combination with approved human drugs and or, for example, standard of care in an in vivo setting. So thus, it can also help us to predict and ultimately then avoid toxicity in human patients and, for example, select uh, best entities, such as what is the optimal FC region for, for an antibody. How are humanized mouse models generated and why are they superior to non-humanized models? In our research, we often use humanized mouse models that are humanized for the immune system because they carry human immune cells within a murid host. The recipient mouse strains are immune deficient in that they almost completely lack a mouse immune system. Thereby, the human immune cells 
isolated from human blood can be directly injected into these mice and also maintained because they are not rejected by the immune immune system. An alternative approach to generate immune humanized mice is the implantation of human hematopoietic stem cells into these immune deficient animals. These stem cells will then give rise to the various human hematopoietic lineages that populate the mice. In select humanized models, the functional development of specific hematopoietic lineages can be enhanced then further by the expression of human cytokines. Another type of humanization is, for example, the genetic replacement or modification of a mouse with a human gene to overcome differences in protein conservation between human and the mouse. And of course, these approaches can also be combined within a humanized model. The humanized models are generally superior, just like in that they allow us to really better study human cells and thereby translate and develop treatments that help human patients and not only work in mice. That's our ultimate goal. Given what you know now, if you look back to when you started using humanized mouse models in your work, what do you wish you would have known then? Yeah, I like to describe humanized mouse models as really partially humanized. So therefore, it's uh, definitely good to have a healthy critical mindset. Um, and I think that's required to really design and interpret a study with humanized mice. Since the model will have substantial differences and limitations compared to a full human immune system. Therefore, I think now I'd consider PKPD studies focusing on a mechanistic understanding best suited for these partially humanized mice. Then next generation humanized mice will be powerful tools to address the biology of select immune subsets. However, it may be pretty challenging to combine all the benefits from these individual next-generation models into one signal model. So therefore, the selection of the right model, customized for your question, is really key. Manfred, what are the best resources that you found to help with your research? Yeah, I think the, the discussion and close review of the current and potential next-generation humanized models has been really important and contract research organizations and their experts there, such as Jackson Labs, Taconic, and Ogenaway, has been really proven useful to evaluate and yeah, get some idea and background information on these models. I think what is really also important is they provide literally like off-the-shelf hematopoietic stem cell uh, humanized mice. They're ready for experiments. So that means you don't really need to have the infrastructure of humanizing mice at your institution. Also, they can generate humanized mouse models for specific genes and your discovery projects. And then, of course, publications about new humanized mouse models from academic uh, labs and institutions is extremely valuable. Are there any common myths that you've come across about utilizing humanized mice in preclinical research that you've heard and you might like to debunk? Yeah, I think with the hematopoietic stem cell reconstituted mice, some colleagues have initially tested them with a lot of enthusiasm, for example, for anti-tumor efficacy in the context uh, of a human xenograft or PDX. And then sometimes the lack of efficacy or variability of responses, challenge to reproduce responses with different humanized batches, since you will always then have new donors for the hematopoietic stem cells. 
and or the lack of identifying your favorite specific immune cell subset could lead to a general rejection then of humanized models and seeing them as irrelevant or unpredictive and non-translating to the clinic. However, the models are clearly partially humanized and of course they have substantial challenges such an MHC mismatch. It is, however, I think important for us to further characterize and develop next generation of humanized models to better understand, on the one hand, the limitations, but also to see and really value the opportunities that these models provide us. And uh, Manfred, the last question I have for you, what are some of the major advances or changes that you predict might happen in the field of preclinical research and particularly humanized mouse research in the next five years? Yeah, I'm pretty confident that the development and the application of next generation humanized models will progress and will quickly progress. So with this then, scientists will have the option to choose really models that better support the development and function of immune subsets that may be of interest for a specific target or drug. And then the humanization of receptors and ligands will also further enable us to use human drugs in a preclinical testing environment. Especially for biotherapeutics, humanized models then can also assist us in toxicity assessments and really determining a safe, while not too low of a starting dose in clinical trials, so that we're not too far away from providing patients really with the chance of having an efficacious drug, even in clinical trials. Manfred, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. It really has been a pleasure and best of luck with your research. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Our thanks to the Jackson Laboratory for making this conversation possible and to the Science Podcast audience for your interest and attention. Until next time. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe there or anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.